0: Our text today is Matthew chapter 9, as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel, hear God's holy word. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you uh, that you have communicated it to us, you've preserved it for us, so that we can read it and hear it now. Grant us your spirit, that we might understand it correctly. Fill me with your spirit, that I might deliver this in, uh, with articulate speech and helpful words. Father, strengthen us all in the study of your word today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. With the fresh cooler air coming on and the presence of fall, it uh, lets us know that the State Fair is just around the corner. I know that you all are ready for your fried Oreos and your uh, uh, funnel cakes and your various meats on sticks, if you uh, enjoy that kind of thing. No one has ever sat on a bench at the State Fair and said, eh, I don't feel like judging anybody today. Uh, because we all do it, right? You sit on the bench, people watching is just people judging, isn't it? We have a compulsion to have this running, internalized commentary on the way people dress, on their hair, how they carry themselves, how well or how poorly they're disciplining their kids. And if you're with your spouse or, or your kids, you kind of do that nod, right? I mean, you do that thing like, oh, you see it? like that? You just with your eyes, you know, like, are you watching? Are you getting a load of this and you do that? You know, it's like, isn't that weird? There's this unspoken language of disapproval or shock or amazement or amusement at what's going on around us. We don't mind distributing that kind of cheap and easy nitpicky criticism, but we typically dislike it. In fact, I'd say we hate it when that kind of criticism is directed toward us. And if any kind of criticism comes our way, we want to justify ourselves. We have a good reason for doing what we're doing. We have an excuse for saying what we said. And you easily get angry and defensive in the face of criticism. Um, uh, Just the thought that someone somewhere might disapprove of us can be petrifying. If you obsess over the criticism of other people, you can become terrified uh, to do or say anything that might bring attention to yourself for fear of what something uh, someone might say, for fear of what someone might think of you or or do. And in certain extreme cases of criticism aversion, you are paralyzed by fear, and, and I suspect it's because in that situation, the paralyzed person thinks that everyone else is criticizing them the way they criticize everyone else, right? You, you think everybody else has the same attitude toward me that I do of, of everyone else. They are picking me apart the way I pick everybody else apart when the case is, that's just not true, that supposed criticism is imaginary. Well, the limits and the dangers of human judgment and Jesus's warnings about the proper execution of judgment is something we studied at length back in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. We read chapter seven where Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged and with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. We studied that at length But it's a topic that we keep coming back to because the Bible has a lot to say about how we exercise righteous judgment, how we exercise judgment between right and wrong, how uh, we uh, exercise mature judgment as well, and how do we respond to human judgment and human opposition when we're criticized for doing the thing that God tells us to do in the gospels and in the epistles, we are repeatedly encouraged to rejoice in the midst of opposition and to not think that something has gone wrong if we are criticized or attacked for following the Lord Jesus. Peter says don't be surprised if that happens. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. Peter says you can expect it. Jesus back in Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount, he says rejoice when you're persecuted for my name's sake for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's over and over we see, don't be surprised at criticism, opposition, accusation, don't despair and certainly don't stop doing what God has called you to do. Don't let the potential of criticism, don't let the fear of men, especially fear of wicked men, don't let this paralyze you and to keep you from doing what God says to do, though this is a strong influence. The influence of the fear of men and the fear of criticism Stultifies people and it, it can lead us into wickedness out of wanting to please wicked people. In all this, as in all things, the Lord Jesus is a preeminent example of how to live. What do you do when you have all kinds of wild and ridiculous accusations thrown at you? How do you respond faithfully to wicked? opposition. Well, here in Matthew chapter 9, the opposition toward Jesus is just beginning, and he shows us how to navigate this. He shows us how to walk through this. We see just the first trickle of the great flood of charges that are going to come against Jesus, and which eventually leads to his crucifixion. We're in that section of Matthew's gospel where Jesus has come down from the mountain, he's delivered the Sermon on the Mount, and then he does 10 miraculous acts of healing and deliverance. Last week, we studied the first five. This week, we're going to see the next five. And as he heals, and as he casts out demons, and as he teaches and forgives sins, he is being constantly criticized by the scribes and the Pharisees, by the ruling religious elite. In this chapter, several false charges are leveled against Jesus. They accuse him of blasphemy, When he heals a paralyzed man, he does so by forgiving that man's sins. And the criticism flies in from the scribes who who are accusing him, you're doing what only God can do. Who do you think you are? You are a blasphemer. And then they accuse him of immorality. Jesus has dinner with tax collectors and sinners. He's keeping the wrong company. And because he's with immoral people, he must be immoral uh, and so they accuse him of immorality. They accuse him of being impious. He doesn't fast the way that they expect an Orthodox Jewish rabbi to fast. He doesn't, he doesn't lead his followers to fast. They find it very suspicious that, they wouldn't, that That Jesus wouldn't follow their customs, that he wouldn't fit their definition of piety. And most obnoxiously and most heinously at the end of this chapter, they accuse him of working for Satan He casts out demons. They see this and they say, well, he must be doing that by the power of the ruler of the demons. He must be filled with the spirit of Satan to be able to do this stuff. None of these criticisms leveled toward Jesus, none of them are valid. They're all ridiculous. And what you have here is people who are confronted with someone they can't understand, doing things they cannot explain, and because of this, they do not like Jesus. They hate what he's doing. He's upsetting everything. They have in their mind, they have a way, they've got a program, they've got an expectation of how Israel's going to be delivered, and this isn't it. Whatever this is, whatever Jesus is doing, is dangerous and it's terrifying to them, so they're going to have to work to undermine him. They try to sow suspicion among his disciples and sow suspicion among his people. They try to argue with him, and eventually, if he doesn't stop this, They're going to have to kill him, which is where it ends up. What we find in the course of all this opposition is is we see what these men are really concerned about, what's in their heart of hearts. Their insecurities come spilling out all over the place because they have not been faithful. They have not shepherded Israel. And there are demons everywhere. How did they get here? On whose watch are these demons running rampant? So, as we work through this chapter, you see that Jesus doesn't respond to this opposition with rage. He doesn't respond with defensiveness. He doesn't even look irritated necessarily. He occasionally stops and answers their questions in a disarming way. He points out their flawed thinking, but he keeps on doing faithfully what he is called to do. He does not stop announcing the good news of the kingdom. He doesn't stop preaching to the outcast and to the poor, or healing the brokenhearted, or proclaiming liberty to the captives, or giving sight to the blind, or setting free those who are oppressed. Let's walk through this chapter together and see how he does this. We read just a few verses a few minutes ago where Jesus healed a paralyzed man lying on a bed who is brought to him. Now, this is, it must be the same event that Luke told us about, where he was teaching in a house, Jesus was teaching in a house, and suddenly there was a uh, impromptu skylight cut into the uh, roof of the house where Jesus was teaching, and they let their friend down um, on, on a bed, down to get in front of Jesus. The same exchange happens, the same events happen before and after that, so it must be the very same event that Luke tells us about. In both Matthew and Luke, when Jesus sees the faith of the friends, he doesn't immediately say you are healed the way he normally does. Rather, he says, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. They bring their friend for healing, and what they get is forgiveness because they're all trusting in Jesus. Obviously, they're trusting in who he is to be able to heal their friend. They're trusting in him, and Jesus responds to that trust with mercy, with forgiveness and his grace. Uh, There's a point that Jesus is making here, which is this. I can heal your friend. I can do that, but that healing is going to be temporary. He's going to get old, and he's going to die one day. This healing is only good for this life, for this body. I'm going to do something for you way more than that. Not only for you, not only for the man on the bed, but for all the friends as well. I'm going to do something for you that has eternal significance. I'm going to release you from your sins. That's your greater need. And I have the greater authority to meet that need. It's at this point that the scribes take exception. And that's where they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. They say, only God can forgive sins. Who does he think he is? Well, if Jesus is not the second person of the Trinity, if Jesus is not the word made flesh, then they're right. Who is he? Who does he think he is? But because he is the son of God, and Jesus says, their hearts are evil, because their hearts are evil, they are the blasphemers. They're attributing evil to a good work of God. They're calling a good work of God evil. They're the blasphemers. And so he says to them, what, what's easier to say? You're forgiven or arise and walk? Which, which is the greater miracle? Which impresses you more? As if, <laughs> as if that were a concern. Which do you care more about? And Jesus says, I do this that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. When he says that, when he says that you may know, it leads me to believe that when Jesus does these mighty acts of healing, he knows who's standing around, he knows who's watching, and he knows just how to provoke the kind of response that he wants to provoke. He knows that saying, your sins are forgiven, is going to push their buttons. And that's exactly what he wants to do. He also wants to use this opportunity to underscore that not only do I have authority over all illness, but I don't want you to miss this, he says. I also have authority on earth to forgive sins. And in doing that, he draws out these evil men to expose the evil in their hearts. And throughout this, This whole thing, their their criticism, we're going to see this. Their criticism against Jesus is just absolutely obnoxious. It's just absolutely ridiculous. It's like when you're watching a football game on TV and you see an elite athlete drop a pass. You know, one of the top 1% of the most physically capable human specimens that walk on the earth uh, makes a mistake, drops a pass. And the television camera will often scan to a guy in the stands, you know, with nacho cheese in his beard, and uh, holding a beer and a hot dog, whose greatest exertion in the last month has been walking up to his seat in the arena, and he's just so disgusted. He's just so disappointed at the guy who dropped the pass. As if we put you in the game, you would do better. You, you, would, you would caught that. You would have caught that, uh, Bubba. I'm sure you would have. Um, <laughs> Who do you think you are? What do you think? Oh, so disgusted, so disappointed. Oh my goodness. Well, this is like that by a multiplier of infinity. Who have you healed, Mr. Scribe? Whose burdens have you lifted? To whom have you given hope, Mr. Pharisee? How is it that you feel so confident in your criticisms and your accusations against Jesus? It's easy for those on the sidelines to criticize those in the arena, and that's what they're doing. So Jesus said to this paralyzed man, arise, and he arose. This is resurrection language, and we're going to see it a couple of more times in this chapter. Jesus is not bringing temporary relief. Jesus is the resurrection man who's bringing people up out of death into eternal life. Watch for that language as we go through, and especially in this next little section. Let's pick up in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Jesus passes by an office, a tax office, which is staffed by a man named Matthew, the same Matthew who becomes the apostle who wrote this book. Later on, when we have a list of the uh, apostles, Matthew is listed as the tax collector, and he becomes one of the closest followers of Jesus. And as a tax collector, Matthew may have been one of the most despised people in that society. No one enjoys paying taxes, and I can't imagine anyone would look forward to spending time with an IRS agent in in any kind of official capacity. But in that day, there's even an extra layer of corruption and fraud to the collection of taxes. The Roman government had developed a system to collect taxes as efficiently and as cheaply as possible, so they auctioned off the right to collect taxes over a certain region, the man who won that auction, the man who bought that right, then became Rome's representative to collect the money and to deliver to Rome an agreed upon amount. So anything that he could raise over and above that amount was his. He was allowed to keep it and he could set those commissions anywhere he wanted. And of course, that is a wide open door for abuse. Nobody knew what they were supposed to pay in taxes. It's not like you could go look it up on an an internet page or, or find the manual or the tax guide or anything like that. It was up to the tax collector to tell you what you owed and then expect you to pay it. And there were property taxes and income taxes and duties to be paid on goods that were imported and exported. There were road taxes. There were sales taxes. The tax man cal- calculated it all, and he collected it from you, and they were notoriously dishonest. So you can imagine everybody, everybody hated them, especially in Jewish society. Here's a man, Matthew. His, uh, that's, that's his Greek name. His Hebrew name is Levi. Uh, just like the uh, patriarch, Levi. Um, His his name is Levi, and and even though he's a Jew, he's working for their country's oppressor. He's working for their country's conqueror, and he's amassing great wealth at the expense of the oppression of their people. What is your opinion of a man like that if you're living in Judea uh, around Capernaum at this time? You don't like this man at all. And this is the man whom Jesus publicly calls to join him. Jesus goes deliberately out of his way to call this man. He picks this man. He walks by his desk and he says, follow me, and Matthew arose, another resurrection, and Matthew follows Jesus. He leaves behind his former life. He leaves behind everything that went with it. Because of his profession, because of the work that he did, Matthew must have been an educated man, a man skilled in language, and he uses those skills to spend the next couple of years writing down what Jesus said, writing down what Jesus did, and he ends up, Matthew ends up authoring one of the most important books in history, the Gospel of of Matthew. We followed that account up with a dinner party. It appears that Jesus spent that evening in Matthew's house, eating with all of Matthew's colleagues and friends, but predictably, The Pharisees have a problem with this. They don't ask Jesus. They don't go to him first. The Pharisees now, they ask his disciples. And their their questions are not genuine. Their questions are not sincere. They're trying to sow doubt. They're trying to to create division. And they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're they're trying to uh, stir these people up against Jesus. Well, well, why do the Pharisees have a problem with who Jesus eats with to begin with? Why do they care about who Jesus' friends are? Well, there was a reason. They believed that the future of their nation depended upon keeping their distance from unclean Gentiles and everyone who's in league with them. Their national identity was wrapped up in their ability to keep themselves pure from association with anything they thought was unclean. Now, I always need to stop whenever we look at this and and this kind of thing, because it comes up throughout Acts and and the epistles. God's law never said that you can't eat with a Gentile. God's law never said you can't befriend a Gentile. This is all first century, second temple, extra biblical uh, uh, law code uh, stuff, purity code stuff. Uh, That's not in God's law. And yet, Uh, they've uh, uh, put together these uh, expectations you can't eat. Now, God's law said uh, about uh, separated between uh, clean foods and unclean foods, but it never said who you could share table fellowship with. There's a way to navigate clean foods and unclean foods uh, as well. But they had this expectation. They believed that God's Messiah would not come and he would not deliver them so long as they were all mixed up with these Gentile dogs, these Gentile pigs. They believed that their national redemption could only come through national purity. And national purity meant separation from the unclean, like the Romans, like the other Gentiles, like anybody who works for the Gentiles and the Romans, these tax collectors. Bottom line is, For the Pharisees, you don't eat with Gentiles, and and you don't eat with anybody who has anything to do with them. Now, here comes Jesus, who is not sharing their sense of national purity. He knows that the only way that a physician can heal the sick is to meet with the sick, to go to where the sick are. And it's among the very people who are scorned by the Pharisees, it's among the people who are outcast by the Pharisees, that Jesus is the most popular and the most well-received. So they bring up another complaint. They say, well, why is Jesus feasting anyway? We have all these fast times prescribed because we're mourning the situation that we're in. We're longing for the coming deliverance of our people, which hasn't happened yet. And Jesus turns that around and says, why are you fasting at a wedding? The mighty bridegroom is here. Messiah is with you. You don't fast when you have the full reality of God's promises coming true before your eyes. Now the time for fasting is coming, but it's not right now. This is a wedding and you're trying to act like it's a funeral. And it's obvious that their system and all their assumptions are not equipped to handle what he's doing. So he's not gonna conform to their expectations. He isn't going to appease them. He's not trying to look for common ground with them. He gives two illustrations for this. He says, you don't put a new patch onto an old garment. So when you wear the old garment with the new patch, and you try to wash the old garment. The new patch is going to tear the old garment. Uh, the, the new threads are going to pull and destroy the old fabric. You don't put new wine into old wineskins. The fermentation and the expansion of the new wine is going to break the old skins. And what this, uh, these pictures have in common is the truth that the new thing that Jesus is doing and the old thing that the Pharisees are holding on to is not going to mix. If you're going to hold on to that old thing, which is mostly extra biblical rabbinic teaching, the oral law tradition, of the second temple, stuff that is outside of God's law, that's what they're holding on to. And Jesus said, I'm not gonna try to put my gospel into that old wineskin, that's ridiculous. It's going to destroy uh, everything. And and eventually the old wineskin does burst and destroy. The old garment is uh, folded up and and thrown away. Uh, uh, So if you're gonna hold on to that old thing, be prepared to be disappointed. But not only that, be prepared to be left out What's so sad about these uh, Pharisees and what's sad about them and what we see in their responses is that uh, what they don't realize is that they are the sick ones. They are the outcasts. They're going to be on the outside looking in. Their sickness is they don't think they're sick. Their, Their malady is they don't think that they need a healer. They don't need this man who gives life. But they're the real blind men. They're the real deaf men. They're the dead in need of resurrection. Their minds and their hearts are the playgrounds of demons. And they can't see it. And yet they're so determined to try to get Jesus to act like them, just to comply. And Jesus does not comply. Now, Matthew gives us two stories of, of uh, two healings, stories that intertwine here in verse 18. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshiped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly, a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, "'Be of good cheer, daughter. "'Your faith has made you well.' "'And the woman was made well from that hour. "'When Jesus came into the ruler's house "'and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, "'he said to them, "'Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping.' "'And they ridiculed him. "'But when the crowd was put outside, "'he went in and took her by the hand, "'and the girl arose. "'And the report of this went out into all that land.'" There's a ruler of the synagogue who desperately, perhaps as a last resort, is coming to Jesus. He's rushing to Jesus while Jesus is teaching and he falls down and worships him. He begs Jesus to come to heal his daughter who has just died, he doesn't have anywhere else to go, he doesn't have any other options, he's overcome with grief, knowing that if Jesus would just come, lay his hand on his daughter, she will live. And Jesus agrees, he gets up and he goes to follow this man home. And on the way to the ruler's house, a woman touches the hem of his garment, hoping to be healed. We read that she had a flow of blood for 12 years. Mark in his gospel tells us that she tried everything. Uh, she, She had suffered many things by many physicians. This medical condition to have a flow of blood for 12 years, that would have made her ceremonially unclean, meaning she was cut off from the worship of the temple. She was cut off from the feast days and the celebrations of her people. Just like the leper that we read about last week, she was ceremonially dead. She was cut off from the life of her people, functionally dead. But she believes that if she touches the hem of his garment, literally the wing of his garment, the same wing that Boaz spreads over Ruth, the same wing that Yahweh wants to spread over his bride Israel in Ezekiel chapter 16, the same wing, the woman is seeking healing, yes, but also protection from the mighty bridegroom of Israel who would cover her with the wing of his robe. Jesus heals her and he says, be of good cheer, rejoice. The bridegroom is here. Your faith has made you well. Well, he resumes his journey to the ruler's house to heal the girl. Well, when he gets there, there's this noisy situation. There's a lot of wailing. There's a lot of mournful music, but it's all unnecessary. Uh, Jesus says, the girl is not dead but sleeping. This is what Jesus was just talking about with the, with the mourning in the presence of the bridegroom, weeping and fasting while it's, a, while it's a wedding. He's just proven himself to be the mighty bridegroom with this woman who touched the wing of his garment. And now he's here, and he says, The sorrow is about to turn to joy, rejoicing, but they ridiculed him. They laughed him to scorn. Uh, this is the same word translated in other places as they mocked him they derided him. Matthew tells us that Jesus responded to that mocking by putting the crowd outside the room. He doesn't stop and argue with them. He puts the crowd outside the room. He takes the girl by the hand and he lifts her up, raises her to life. This is our third resurrection in this chapter. Uh, The man on the bed, the paralytic, gets up. Matthew gets up. This little girl gets up. Everywhere Jesus goes, he is bringing life out of death. He's bringing life out of darkness. He is the resurrection man. He is the way, the truth, and the life in every possible way. Uh, Jesus stopped their mocking mouths by demonstrating his life-giving resurrection authority. As I said last week, that's the theme of these chapters is... Is Jesus establishing his authority over impurity, over disease, over demons, over sin, over all creation? He has authority. And now, not even death itself is a challenge for him. He can bring this girl. To life. Let's finish this chapter. Verse 27. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them saying, see that no one knows it. But when they departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest." Jesus always warns people to be discreet about their healing because he knows that he is barreling into this confrontation with the seats of power in Jerusalem where they're going to put him to death. You you can't go around doing and saying what Jesus is doing and saying and not end up on a cross. That's, everybody knows this. Everybody knows this is where he's headed. By staying out of Jerusalem for now, and by warning people not to say anything, he is delaying that. He's buying time so he can spend time teaching his apostles. He can preach the gospel of the kingdom. Everybody can see what he's all about. The problem is, is that nobody can keep anything quiet. The blind men who are healed, and the people who see the girl brought back to life, spread the news everywhere. And... With this, just as Jesus knew would happen, the opposition intensifies. When Jesus casts demons out from a man, the people are amazed. The people are absolutely uh, wonderstruck by this thing that Jesus is doing. They said, we've never seen anything like this in Israel. Who has this kind of authority? This is amazing. But the Pharisees, now they know We can't simply accuse him of being a bad Jew. We can't simply accuse him of being an impious man. They go right for the nuclear option. The only way this man can cast out demons is by being in league with Satan. That's what they say. He is is serving the ruler of the demons. Once again, their insecurities are showing. Have they had any power over demons? Why not? Why are there demons in Israel? Why do they keep showing up the synagogues, the demons? This is the fifth reference to demons in Matthew's gospel, and there are five more. What are the Pharisees doing about this? Well, nothing. And, and all they can do is accuse the only one who has power over the demons of being in league with Satan. How does that make any sense? What, what is the rationale there? Why would Satan go to war against his own minions? This accusation is a desperation move. Uh, They think that they can manipulate ignorant people to go against Jesus. Um, And it's because of behavior like this, condescending behavior like this and attitudes like this from the religious establishment, it's because of this that the people are, as Matthew says, they are weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Look again at how many insults, and accusations Jesus has absorbed in just this one chapter. They called him a blasphemer. They criticized him for eating with sinners. They accused him of a lack of piety for not fasting. They laughed him to scorn, and they mocked him when he said the girl was only sleeping. And then they charged him with working for Satan. How did he respond? How would you respond? If I called you a blasphemer right now, how would you take it? What if I said, you're serving Satan. You're on Satan's team. Uh, I think you'd be indignant. I think you would be outraged. I think you might even get defensive. We, We respond most passionately when we're accused of things that aren't true. Baseless accusations will drive you mad with frustration. Now, if there's any truth to an allegation and you're a humble person... You'll take it to heart if somebody brings to you something legitimate that that actually, yeah, I can see. I think I I think I did that. I, I think I did say that. I think I did do that. I'm uh, I, and, I, and I was wrong. I'm sorry. I repent. You seek to make it right. None of us, none of us, are above correction, especially when a brother or a sister or a fellow believer brings something to our attention. If we've sinned against them, we want to know about it and we want to make it right. That's not what's happening here. That's not what we're talking about. What do you do with an empty accusation? What do you do with a false allegation? Empty accusations like this from people with twisted minds and twisted hearts who are not interested in doing what God says. They're not interested in what God requires. What do you do? How do you respond? Do you work to justify yourself? Do you try to prove to the accuser that what they said is false? Do you watch your step? Do you tiptoe around them hoping? I hope I don't provoke them into saying anything even more outrageous. So maybe I'll just, I'll just watch my P's and Q's. I'll just watch what I say. I'll watch what I do. Do you try to appease? Do you try to work with the accuser and say, well, yeah, I kind of see your point. I kind of see how you would think that I was working for demons by casting out demons. Is that? Do you, do you kind of give them a little bit of ground and say, yeah, I see how someone would think that. Maybe I am too much like that. And, you, and then you back off doing the thing that you know is right because you just can't handle the opposition. Are those our options? Is that, are those the things we do? Well, Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus does none of that. His responses to them are not defensive. There's a point later in Matthew's gospel where he unloads warnings of judgment on the scribes and Pharisees. But at this point, he's deflecting their criticism Focusing on the people he came to serve, which, which shows something to me, is that in Christ, a righteous man can absorb a lot of insult. He can absorb a lot of outrageous, obnoxious accusation. A righteous man in Christ, it is possible to absorb insults without responding sinfully. That's what Jesus shows us. And it's possible to absorb a lot of really heinous, false accusations. That's what it says. But Jesus, absolutely, he certainly doesn't enter into their anxiety and he doesn't act like any of their claims are legitimate. He doesn't give them any, he doesn't give them any credit. Like, yeah, you might have a point there. Oh yeah, you're probably right. Oh, I'll try to do differently in the future. I'll try to. no, no, he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't walk on eggshells. He doesn't, he doesn't avoid doing or saying things out of fear of what they're going to say. There is no fragility in Jesus in the response in the face of these accusations don't want to upset the Pharisees. We better watch what we do. No. In fact, as we've seen, he deliberately does things that are going to provoke them further. He tells the man, your sins are forgiven, knowing that they're not going to like that. He could have called anyone to follow him, and yet he goes out of his way to call Matthew. The apostle Peter describes Jesus so wonderfully in, uh, in his epistle. Listen to this. Listen to this very carefully. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. He says... Peter says, Peter writes, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. What are the steps we should follow? Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray. It's like Peter is quoting Matthew here that Peter talks about these sheep who are weary and scattered. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls, the overseer of your souls. And I wanna quote that little part in the middle again. Listen closely. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. He committed himself. Jesus committed himself to pleasing and obeying the righteous judge. His father in heaven is the righteous judge. And in the face of evil, unbelievable, outrageous, obnoxious accusations, Jesus committed himself to please his father in heaven the righteous judge. See, evil men don't judge righteously. And we're not required in any sense to live up to their expectations or to live down to their standards, as the case may be. Or or we're not under any obligation to fulfill their definition of what they think a Christian is. We commit ourselves like Jesus. We commit ourselves to the one who judges righteously, who is God the Father. Because he's the one we're going to stand before in the day of judgment. So draw encouragement from this example of our Lord Jesus, especially in the middle of conflict and opposition, be boldly, confidently, courageous in serving your Father in heaven. Do not answer reviling with reviling. Don't take the bait of evil men. Don't enter their framework and try to make what you believe fit their old dead wineskin, their old dead garment. Don't, don't adopt their definitions. Don't give them any ground. Do what God puts you here to do. Do it with great joy. Don't apologize for it. Rest in following your great shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for calling us the way you called your servant Matthew. We thank you for calling us to get up and to follow you, for giving us life. Please give us the boldness and confidence and the righteous wisdom of your son Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.